Welcome to the Maris Review, brought to you by LitHub Radio. Well, I'm so happy to have Erin Summers joining us at the Maris Review. Erin is the author of Stay Up with Hugo Best, which is maybe the most nuanced look at sexual dynamics in the talent industry that I've read in a while. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the book and what it's all about? Uh, sure. Um, well, it's a novel, um, and it's about retiring late-night talk show host Hugo Best, kind of a David Letterman or Jay Leno type, um, who on the last night of his show, the last taping of his show, has an encounter with a young staffer at an at an open mic, and on a whim, invites her back to his house in Connecticut for a long weekend, for Memorial Day weekend. Um, and she surprises herself by accepting, and it kind of unfolds from there. Excellent. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you immediately was, how did you research this book? You've never worked in late night, right? Right. No, I've never worked in late night. And have you ever done stand-up comedy? I've never done stand-up comedy. <laughs> um, but I... I guess I just fancy myself funny and thought I could write the jokes or thought I had a feel for writing stand-up jokes, kind of based on nothing. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been to a lot of shows or do you watch on Netflix, that kind of thing? Yeah, I um, am a comedy fan and I like stand-up and um, I like, you know, funny movies and funny TV and I write I've written comic fiction as long as I've been writing fiction Um, so I I felt like I kind of had a feel for the timing and I thought that it would also be a fun formal challenge to try Mm. to write stand-up jokes um, because I'd never had before but um, right I had no insider knowledge of working in late night thank you Um, so it was sort of of just starting from scratch Um, so I just read a lot of books. There are a lot of really great books out like there what? about it. Um, the Late Shift yes. is a great one. Yes. Um, another one uh, that I read about the 70s comedy scene uh, the, at the Comedy Cellar in L.A. is called I'm Dying Up Here, which they yes. made a, a so-so TV series okay. yep. about. Yes, um, fair. Um, what else? I read um, a biography of Leno. I read an oral history of the writer's room. Um at David Letterman. Um, I read, uh, let's see, what else? I don't know. I did I did a lot of reading that I can't, other <laughs> reading I can't think of off the top of my head. And how about watching? Were you going back and watching old episodes or were you watching stand-up? Or? Yeah, I watched like a lot of old clips. I kind of went host by host starting with Carson. And so I watched wow. like, a lot of Carson and I watched a lot of Leno and I watched a lot of Letterman. Um, Sort of just to get that, like, hacky talk show host <laughs> rhythm down to yeah. like, get get a feel for it more than anything. Um, and on top of that, I listened to a ton of WTF with Mark Maron just to hear sure. hear about um, what, what comedians' lives are like typically <laughs> and what their trajectories are right. um, and to be inspired about for Hugo's backstory. Um, and other things I did to research were I, I went to a taping of Colbert. Um, Excellent. I 
the, the the background you give on going to the show is is kind of amazing in terms of um, all the young kids who are there just to kind of police where you sit. <laughs> and uh, it, it's quite part of the experience, I guess, of attending a late night show. Yeah, it, the kids really struck me and I really wanted to use that. And I really felt a lot of empathy for them about how um, both stressful and boring their job seemed. Like there's the kid that gives the same spiel over and over (laughs) about like when you're allowed to use the bathroom and like how you can't eat during the taping and just like the same spiel day in and day out. But um, they all seem really passionate. Um, And it also seems like you could make you could make mistakes, too. And so it's like fairly stressful. Um, so I did that. And then I also one of the most useful things I did was I talked to a former writer for Letterman who had started as a network page and worked in every job um, that it took to work his way up to writer. Wow. And he described yeah. in detail every single thing he did. Um, and he let me grill, grill him about like uh, what, you know, what did you do as a page? What did you right. do when you were the receptionist? What did you do? Um, he had a couple of jobs that I think are obsolete now too about like how ticketing works. Um, so I learned a lot from him and yeah, I, that was pretty much it. I, it was a lot of research. There was a lot I didn't use. I also watched a lot of documentaries. There's a great Carson documentary. Ooh, what's it called? Do you know? I cannot remember off the top of my head. We'll we'll look it up. Yeah. Um, there's a great, there's a lot I, I also didn't end up using. Like I, I learned a lot about Sid Caesar. Oh. Cause I thought, um, so a lot of, People like forces of comedy wrote for Sid Caesar, mm-hmm. like um, Woody Allen, um, like a lot of people in Woody Allen's cohort. That okay. age of like 70, 80, 90 year old dude, right? Um, all wrote for <laughs> Sid Caesar, and I was like, oh, maybe Hugo should write for Sid Caesar, but then the like the ages didn't work out, so I like needlessly went in went <laughs> down yeah the Sid Caesar rabbit hole but all that stuff is really funny and really holds up so it was never oh, good yeah it was never boring how did you how did you access that stuff like is it on YouTube or um yeah it's on YouTube great there okay on okay YouTube, well which I know what I'm gonna do tonight yeah <laughs> and in terms of coming up with a character of June who is 29 and she is a writer's assistant, so she's not even like an actual writer on the show, but she's a step above a page and receptionist, I guess you would say. How did you figure out her life? Um, I guess I thought about myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that uh, she bears a lot of similarities to where I was personally in my life when I started writing it, Mm -hmm. um, around 28 or 29, when I was trying to get a creative career going, but felt like I was getting nowhere. And I didn't really see how I could advance. And I didn't really see a way forward. And it didn't really seem possible. And I was really poor. And I lived in shitty apartments. And I just felt very stymied, which I think is a very common thing to happen to young people like striving after absolutely yeah (laughs) not to um one of one of the little throwaway lines that i love that you um wrote in this is when hugo asks june why did she leave south carolina she says hope 
ambition, belief in myself, you know, kid stuff. And that I, I feel like that really spoke to um, <laughs> how how creative fields can be rather disappointing at times. Yeah. And so you spend all of your 20s trying really hard and having like a lot of passion and a lot of like belief in yourself. And I yeah. think that by the time you hit 30 or near 30, you're a little bit jaded or exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to capture that, that weariness, the June. Yeah. And... And so she's at this open mic um, after her rap party, and Hugo shows up. And what makes her want to go with him? She seems so cynical and so cool. I guess um, her feeling is, why not? Well, the whole book is about her untangling what, why she's done this and right. what she's there for and what she's after. Right. And I think at the beginning when she um, hops in his chauffeured SUV, she doesn't even know. Her motivations are a little opaque to herself. Right. Um, she doesn't know exactly what she wants. And so the whole weekend is about her realizing that she does want one of want some of the things – Hugo has. She does value wealth more than she's willing to admit. She does she is more impressed with his fame than she's willing to admit. Right. Um and I think there's also a sense of like she just wants to see what's going to happen. Yeah, I think I mean and that was my feeling just reading the book that I just wanted to see where everything was going kind of. I I don't mean that in a narrative sense. I mean like um what will June do? <laughs> um, I feel like women in particular are um, asked often if a protagonist they write is based on themselves. Um, and for better or for worse, sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. Um, where would you say June fits in? Well, I definitely didn't sleep with David Letterman, <laughs> which is what people want to have had happened. Um, and I didn't work in late night, which is right. That's also, huge. Right. People really want that because they want it. People just like, I think, crave autobiography or whatever reason or like crave that it be. People think it makes it more authentic if it happened. Somehow. Certainly I read your author bio and was looking for she was a writer on blah, blah, blah. And it certainly doesn't diminish the story at all. Um, Right. Yeah, I think that I I fully understand that, that expectation. Um, But other than that, she's very similar to me in a lot of ways. Um, Because it was my first novel I ever wrote, I decided to make things a little bit easier on myself in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, By just letting her speak in my voice like have some of the same observations I would have and have my own turns of phrase um, and also know what I know. As a fiction writer, I really go down, like I I really go down the rabbit hole with that stuff. Like it instantly becomes too trippy when I start to consider what a character knows and what they don't know. Yes. Like if I'm writing someone who has less knowledge than me, it, it just becomes like a trippy experience or someone who's smarter than me. I'm like, how do I begin to know what they know? 
Yeah, exactly. So I was like, I'm going to eliminate that whole like psychedelic <laughs> experience of trying to sort out their knowledge by just having her know what I know. I, I mean, I even get like, I'm a short person. How would I ever write a tall person? <laughs> that experience seems yeah. completely different. Or like reaching for a reference and it's you're writing a character very foreign to yourself. And it's yes. like, wait, does this person have that reference? I right. have that reference. Do they have that reference? Right. Um, and yeah, so that for me, that gets like psychedelic really quickly. So I, I was just like, OK, I'm going to simplify it. She knows what I know. Her observations are similar to my own and she speaks similar to me. So let's go deeper now into the little bit of stand-up comedy that you did write. And, I mean, to set the scene, you've got this Fairfield University frat boy um, at this divey bar. And he's talking about how he loves to pee off porches. Where? Do, what, how do you come up with that? So I went to go see Norm, the comedian, and um, weirdly, uh, for free. And uh, he was great. Norm's great. He's yeah. very weird and but ve- like very funny. I really like his delivery. But anyway, this that is not the point. The point is that there was he had an opener, and before the opener <laughs> even there was an MC, and the MC was this very typical open mic MC in that he like they incorporate a little of their stand up or like yes. a little they're joking around they tell a few jokes yes and they're bad <laughs> i think it's very typical for them to be bad um and his jokes were just so mirthless and vulgar to me <laughs> that i had to use them <laughs> not not literally use them but i had to write a character um just like a repulsive open, open mic type guy so there are a couple in that scene. Um, there actually is an yes. MC, and then there is that the frat guy you talk about, where it's just like <laughs> these are these are disgusting jokes. <laughs> do you, when you were researching the book, do you think the quality of the jokes has changed or gotten better or worse in terms of men being aware that they're being jerks? I don't know if men have grown more aware that they're jerks. Somewhat? I don't know. I haven't I don't know that I've seen enough comedy since to be able to like rate mm. um whether that like there has been like a, a huge transformation on that front. Um I think that type must persist though. That yes. type of unfunny MC dude. That's yes. like gotta still be a thing. Yes can say from personal experience that I've witnessed it. Um, But also, so it was important to me to nail um, the realistic feeling, the authentic feeling of being at a comedy show and hearing that type of comedy. So I wasn't going for the best jokes I could possibly write. um, Which is an interesting challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Aim. How do you aim for mediocrity? Right. In, in a way, it sort of um, it made the project more approachable because if I had to, <laughs> right. you, know, you know, when you read a novel and it's like about the best poet ever in the world. And then there's a sample. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. And you're like, oh, no, Cringe. that's bad. Or a novel within a novel and the novel's supposed to be great. And uh-huh. you're like, it's just not great. Yes. So I didn't set out, like I didn't set that task, task for myself. I wasn't like 
Hugo is super funny. He's the funniest comedian in the world. And now you're going to hear just his gonna stand up. <laughs> yeah. Speak for him. I was like, um, here are three people who are mediocre stand ups and they'll get maybe one laugh each. Um, uh, so that was actually doable. That actually made the task doable because I don't think yes. I could have, having never written stand up before, written great stand up. But certainly mediocre stand-up was attainable. And in terms of when you started writing the book versus um, where we are now, how much of the Time's Up movement had happened or was happening when you were writing? Zero had happened. Zero had happened. So I started the book um, in 2014 as a short story that basically Mm -hmm. hit the same... Um, it had the same basic outline, and um, then I sat on it for a little while, and I realized that it would probably work better as a novel. It could be fleshed out more. Yeah. Um, and so then I drafted it as a novel, and I finished it um, in October. Uh, no, Harvey Weinstein was yes. October yes. of 2017, and I finished it in November. So did you do any going back or any, did it change the outcome at all? Did you? It didn't change anything because the thing is that everyone knew. Yeah. Right. That this was going on. Absolutely. In Hollywood, in comedy, in every industry and still goes on in most industries. We both work in publishing now. (laughs) (laughs) So although it may seem prescient, I think women aren't surprised that I I knew about this or I had a a sense of this. Even having not worked in entertainment, um, I don't think it's surprising to know about. No. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And of course... Letterman had a weird moment in time, was it 2009? Yeah. When he confessed? Right. He was extorted, though, right? Yes. Yeah. He was extorted. (laughs) And so then he had to go on his show and confess that he was sleeping with his staff. His staffer, yeah. Yes. Um, So that had already happened. Um, there were there had been many instances sure. of it. Yeah, there were Cosby rumblings for years, yep. and there were even Louis C.K. rumblings for years. Yep. Um, if you believe Gawker, which I <laughs> yeah. I tended to believe Gawker on those types of rumors. Same. Um, and I mean, there were all kinds of rumblings for years. It just was so. It just seemed so obvious to me. Um, just from having been a person in the world who has interacted with a man <laughs> in a professional environment that, you know. And in terms of repercussions, certainly Letterman is doing just fine now. Uh, yeah, he's got his Netflix show and he's got his beard yeah. and he has his house in Connecticut. So he's fine. Um, I think he lucked out by having it happen as early as it did. Mm-hmm. Um, if it had happened around the same time as Harvey Weinstein and every everybody else, I think he would have had difficulty coming back as some of those people have had, as we've seen with Louis C.K. Yeah. So what stand-ups do you like right now? Are you, are you 
watching comedy these days or are you watching late night? Yeah, I have to confess I've taken a break from stand-up since writing the book. Fair. Um, but I love Samantha Bee's show. Yeah. Because um, I like to see a woman. Uh-huh. Um, I like John Oliver's show. <laughs> as far as um, funny TV shows go, I'm excited Veep is back. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Yeah. Um, I loved um, – did you see his movie? Did you see Death of Stalin? The, the new No, not yet. Oh, it's fantastic. Okay. Um, I know he left Veep, but it's like it's like Veep, but about Stalin. Stalin. Yeah, it's great. The moment. Um. What else is great? Oh, I love Catastrophe. Do you like Catastrophe? So much. Um, I love Rob Delaney. I love Rob Delaney, too. And I saw him do stand-up at Caroline's years ago now, before he became more than a Twitter celebrity. <laughs> yeah. No, he's fantastic. Um, and I like... I think he's even improved, um, or I've become even more interested in him as he's like gone through a lot in his yes. personal life. Yes. And I think it makes him such a, a compelling entertainer. Not that I would, of course, wish that on anyone, but he's like so compelling and so, I don't know, it's, he's so interesting now that he's like had the shit kicked out of him by the world. So I'm yeah. just like, I'm so interested in him. And Sharon Horgan, Horgan is great too. She's, she's excellent. Yeah. Let's talk about publishing for a little bit. Let's do it. Um, how long have you been working at Publishers Marketplace full time? Um, a little over two years, almost two and a half years. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Pub Lunch, um, will you give us a little roundup? Apparently, you've been doing this lately. Sure. Um, it is a daily publishing newsletter that comes out around lunchtime or just in advance of lunchtime. And we round up all the day's publishing news, personnel moves, book selling news, awards, that sort of thing, as well as earnings and financial news and legal news. Um, and it's got um, a bit of a, a dry sense of humor or the <laughs> yes. snarky voice that people in publishing have come to rely on. <laughs> Absolutely. What's the snarkiest thing you've ever written about? Um, I The snark is typically not me. I'm typically <laughs> very neutral. I would say it's my boss, Michael Cater, who um, is pretty snarky. A headline he had last week about Brett Easton Ellis, yes. who's back in the news today, Oh gosh, um, was uh, something like Brett Easton Ellis is still bored with the world or something. And then it was, um, you know, he like links to whatever relevant link. So, right. Yeah. Well, I guess everybody's just going to be talking about the New Yorker interview for the next day, at least. I don't know how the, the pace of the news is so crazy, but um, wow. It was quite the interview. It really was. He knows what he's doing. And like the what not to do's are, I mean, if you're ever preparing to be an author doing an interview, just uh, look at that. <laughs> yeah, maybe he should have appeared to care about the subject of his book. Yeah, it could, that might have helped. That whole I'm not into politics thing. Um, have you ever looked at Jay McInerney's Twitter? I mean, uh, Instagram? No. Okay. I love Jay McInerney. <laughs> Me too. Because he is like such a contrast to Brett Easton Ellis. Mm -hmm. He just like has his wine. Yes, and his he does. Rich wife. And he's just like 
a joy. It's a joy to watch him just age and enjoy <laughs> like life. Like fine wines. Yes. Did you read that thing that was in The Strategist? Um, you know, where people write, like, yeah. like, 10 things I can't live without. Yes. I recommend to all listeners, Jay McInerney's Strategist, 10 things I, I can't, can't live even without. imagine that must be the most luxurious crap yeah i mean the the first line of it is oh god i mean there are so many good champagnes out there so constant problem for me so anyway he's um my lifestyle guru and (laughs) i recommend jay mcinerney taking a peek into jay mcinerney's social presence if you need a break from brett easton ellis i love that yeah (laughs) do you have any like wide-scale observations about the publishing industry from from sitting in your perch, making up our lunchtime. I don't think this is a good observation, but I think that the best books are being written by women right now. Hell yeah. Especially fiction. I would agree. Which is not to say that some men aren't also very talented. I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> like, what's a great book this spring from a male novelist? This spring... All right, all right. I'm on the spot, but well, I mean, we do have Colson Whitehead's book coming up. Okay, summer, July. Oh, that's summer. July You're right. For the you Coulson. call me out. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of big. We we have Ben Lerner in the fall. Okay, he's a major yes. novelist. We have um, who else? I don't know. I don't see where. Who are the male novelists who are coming up? Like. The cohort of female novelists that I'm in is insane. Like, T- talk about them. I mean, like, Sally Rooney's a little bit younger than me, but of course, Sally yes. Rooney jumps out. Her books are brilliant. Um, I think Otessa Mushfeg, I hope I'm saying that name right, yeah. um, is incredibly brilliant and me too. Possibly a contender for the best prose stylist of my generation. I feel like my year of rest and relaxation is something that Brad Easton Ellis wishes he could have written at some point. Definitely. Um, who else um, is coming out with a book that's great? I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but it just feels like it's a boom in, in young female novelists, and it's it's amazing. I mean, she's not my age, but the new Susan, Susan Choi is great. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. The, have you read Three Women by Lisa Today? I haven't. You got to read it. Okay. It's nonfiction, but it reads like a novel, and it is incredible. That's so good. Yeah, I I tend to um, try to have a token man on any list that I write. But yeah, I too am consumed by women writers. Yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting. I just profiled Miriam Taves. Oh, who, yeah. She's amazing. I really want to read her book. Yeah, it's really good. Um, yeah, I think I think for spring, not a novelist, but my friend Jason Green wrote a beautiful, beautiful memoir called Once More We Saw Stars, and that's coming out from Knopf, and it's devastating. I think I saw an excerpt yesterday, yes, yes. and it seemed so sad. It's so sad, but he writes... He's able to find beauty in some part of the world um, through his writing. And uh, I, it's going to be incredible. You know, cool. it's not a vacation read. <laughs> a 
Okay, so that's one man who wrote a book. Yeah, there you go. Go, Jason. (laughs) Good stuff is being published that I'm excited about. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Erin. Thank you for having me, Maris. Are you you doing any other events for the book? I am doing an event in May at the Center for Fiction, and I'm also doing a reading at Greenlight Books in May. Um, So find me on the internet to check out those dates and times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.